We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. I'll wake you up in the morning. <laughs> I love it. Hey, welcome to church, and we are glad you're here. We're praying that God would do a great work in your life and in your heart uh, this week. If you are a guest with us, we want to welcome you. Um, um, I, just personally, uh, what a joy to be here and, and enjoy God. Uh, some, uh, I, I was asked about three years ago, how, how do you enjoy God, Mike? And um, I was just reminded of just singing this morning. I was reminded of that question because I was enjoying uh, the harmonies uh, of the people of God. Uh, I was even enjoying just the beauty of the stained glass window, the sun shining through and the, the rays coming through in this room. And um, I was reminded of how uh, we are dressed in His righteousness alone. Emphasis on His righteousness. Emphasis on alone. And so, so good at just how God uh, prepares us to hear certain messages and to cause us to enjoy Him this morning. So let's continue to enjoy Him together. Amen? Uh, let's enjoy Him through prayer. Okay? So uh, prayer is what God loves from His people. It's not just something uh, in the service that's uh, in passing. Uh, not just something uh, to transition the worship team to the pastor in some seamless sort of presentation, right? But God loves it when His people pause and His children pray. Um, and so, um, this morning, we're going to have two specific prayers. Uh, on your seat this morning, you were given this uh, handout. One side says, 30 days of prayer for our nation. And then one side says, prayer for the persecuted church. And we are going to do both this morning. Uh, around the globe, uh, the first week of November, the first Sunday in November, excuse me, is called prayer for the persecuted church. Um, and we just thought, hey, it's a big week for our nation as well. It's election week. Uh, if you haven't been praying for our country already, let's go ahead and devote some time uh, this this service in prayer, and let's be deliberate to pray as a people for our country this morning. So let's go ahead, and I will just start with our nation, um, and I'm just going to read November 3rd. You see where I'm at? Just uh, 30 days for praying for our nation, November 3rd. I'm going to read it and pray, and then I'm going to flip the page, and I'm going to read a little bit, and then we're going to pray for the persecuted church. And children, if you don't know what persecuted means, it just means the people of God across the globe that are experiencing difficult times. Uh, there's uh, adults who are beating Christians up, threatening, threatening them to kill them, and uh, we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we don't know their names exactly, we're going to pray that they would cling to Jesus and be strong 
and that the joy of the Lord would be their strength. That's how we're going to pray for them right now, okay? So let's bow our heads, and we'll pray for our nation first. On November 3rd, it says to meditate on Matthew 6 and Revelation 22, and it says to, as we cast our ballot or our vote, that we pray for Jesus to return soon and usher in his kingdom in perfect justice and righteousness in all the earth. Let's pray for that this morning. So Father, we pause our hearts and we pray for our country this morning. I know after just speaking with the people in this room that even the families represented here have uh, experienced great trials. Uh, Families are being torn apart based off of political positions and um, opinions, beliefs, convictions. That's happening at a micro level. Lord, at a macro level, our country, uh, this is a significant week. Uh, We say it every four years, but this really is one of the most important elections of our lifetime. And so we, just like we sing, we surrender. We surrender our lives. We, we, We are down on our knees. We're bowing before you, God, and we're asking that King Jesus would be seen clearly and heard clearly this week especially. Whether Trump or Biden's elected, I pray for your people this morning that they would respond rightly. Lord, that we, the gathering, would be peacemakers. And you tell us, blessed are the peacemakers for they will inherit the earth. And so I pray that we would especially be marked by peace. Lord, peacemakers don't um, just just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to evil. Lord, peacemakers have convictions and strong beliefs. But Lord, peacemakers speak of the Prince of Peace. And so we pray that our church would be so in love with Jesus this week. And I, I just pray that we would trust that you control the government. And just like you say in the scriptures, that just like a drop can, of, of water can, can fall down on a palm of a hand, it can follow the creases of a hand, Lord, that you have a plan for this country. Would you allow your country to flourish? Or would you allow America to, just, to, to be a peaceful country? And we pray for, for the church that, that we would have a peaceful state. That we would, as it says in the pastoral epistles, that we would live a gentle and quiet life. I pray that your people would pray for the government and that we would be more passionate about the gospel of Jesus than anything else this week. So we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And so we also pray for the persecuted church. If you would just open your eyes and follow along with me. 
It says that we're asking that during the first week of November, we pray for the persecuted church around the globe. So take this sheet home with you in your groups this week. Pray. Um, put this on your nightstand. And uh, as um, married couples, are, uh, just devote yourself to praying for um, uh, five specific countries this week. North Korea, Afghanistan, Burkina Faso, Nepal, and Colombia. And I'm just going to read the first paragraph where it says 300 million Christians, and then we'll pray together. It says 300 million Christians worldwide suffer persecution. Persecution, Persecuted Christians worldwide face much opposition and difficulty, ranging from discriminatory treatment at community and official levels, illegal arrests, violence, human rights violations, and sometimes even murder. On average, eight Christians are being killed daily because of their faith. Last year, the world saw a 6% increase in Christian persecution in countries where it is most severe. So let's go bow our heads and we'll pray generally for these five countries and in general for persecuted Christians across the globe. And so we, uh, we do remember those who are experiencing great trials and persecution. Lord, in Hebrews, uh, it, it talks about those who have experienced great persecution, and it even says that we who have not yet experienced bloodshed should be praying for them. And so, Lord... Um, I don't know anyone in this room who is experiencing persecution to the point of bloodshed, but we pray for this church that we would be ready to die for Jesus. And we pray for those who are experiencing um, the threat of death right now, that they would hold fast to your son Jesus. As we studied in the churches in Revelation, we pray that they would endure patiently, that they would be marked by that patience, and they would endure all the way to the end, and that they would know that that this is the truth, that even if they give their lives, that you still remain good, and even in the giving of their life for the gospel, that that just might be the most strategic thing for the gospel. We know that uh, the seed of the Reformation was the bloodshed of the martyrs. And so we do not pray for a smooth life for the church across the globe, but we pray that the church would shine brightly in moments of great persecution and then also in moments of just great, um, we could say, flourishing, whether that's economic or relational. Would you use your church now in this time period for your sake and it's in jesus name we pray amen amen well let's get after it church Uh, it is good to pray with you let's open our bibles to the book of romans chapter 3 verses 21 forgive me 27 to 31 and you'll have to forgive me for my uh, voice a little bit it's a little bit hoarse uh, the junior high Lebanon Christian volleyball team brought home the trophy yesterday. And there was 
much uh, coaching and, and yelling involved. And so it cost me a little bit, but I pray that you would hear beyond my, my, my hoarseness. So uh, if you just notice in your, in your Bibles, you just look up a little bit. We are just on the heels of hearing the great good news of Jesus Christ, how the love of God through Jesus um, redeemed us, how it justified us by grace, and it bought us from the marketplace. Last week we were in three different scenes, you remember that? The courtroom, the market, and the temple. We even learned a great word together, propitiation. You remember that? Wasn't that great? You guys did awesome together. I love it. And so after really stating some of the most beautiful truths in Scripture, Paul is going to ask some significant questions this week. And they are tremendously important questions. And um, if we get them right, if we get these questions right, friends, they will have a tremendous impact on your life. I promise. If we get these questions wrong this morning, friends, I promise it will have a tremendous impact on your life. Okay? And, uh, and let me just preface it with this. All right? He's going to ask some questions. And I just said, if we get them right or if we get them wrong, da 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 da. But here's how theology works. We don't just come to church, open the Bibles, and maybe you might be thinking, oh, I hope Pastor Newman gets it right so that I go to a good church or a solid church or, or I, I can say I go to a church that gets it right. Theology, and while God wants us to be accurate, theology always warms the heart. Okay, so we're pursuing light in our heads but it always travels the 18 inches to the heart and it brings heat. And so we are fervent this morning not just to ask questions from Scripture and get the right answers, but I am praying that this text produces great worshipers this morning. And so we're going to state a question, we're going to spend some time answering it, and then we're going to run as fast as we can to how it impacts our lives. Okay? Are you with me? So the title this morning is uh, FAQs about justification, okay? Frequently asked questions about justification and our timeless truth, if you're taking notes and I would encourage you to do so, is this. This is the message this morning. Understanding justification through faith alone produces a humble, hope-filled heart for others happy Christian. <laughs> okay? My English teacher would just slaughter me, but I'm okay with that. Okay? Understanding justification through faith alone produces, and here's all these H words, a humble, hope-filled, heart for others, happy Christian. Are you ready to get after it? Let's do it. So Father, we just pray one more time. Would you guide us would you give us a fervency for your word? And we pray that it would stir our affections, that we would love Jesus more this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so we're going to let these FAQs guide our time. There's four questions, so there's four points, okay? Point uh, number one, question number one, is there room for a little pride? That's verse 27. Second question, do works get you justified? 27b and 28. Number three, is there then one God for one people? 29 and 30. And number four, does faith work? Does faith work? 31. And the answers to those questions are no, no, yes, and yes. Let's pray. Have a great Sunday. <laughs> we can all be dismissed now, right? A little deeper than that. Just kidding. A little pastoral dry humor there. <laughs> Question number one, is there room for a little pride? Okay, let me read the verse for us. Verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. So why doesn't Paul just say, uh, so what becomes of our boasting? Um, no. Or why doesn't he just say, don't boast. Like, stop boasting. Or something like that. He says, it is excluded. Okay, so... Paul brings this unique word picture. This, this word means to shut out, to turn out the doors, or to prevent the approach of one. It would be like uh, someone is coming up uh, to your front door, and you kind of um, open the door, but you still got the storm door still closed, and you, you look through the glass and you smile at the person, and you kind of entertain these thoughts like, should I bring them in? Should I not? Right? It's kind of like this vacuum salesman. Nothing against vacuum salesmen, right? But it's this vacuum salesman. He comes up to the porch and you're like, oh, okay. I have vacuum bread. Should I let him in? Should I not? Right? And, and what this word picture is saying to you is, shh, keep the door, keep the storm door shut. Like, don't even let the, the vacuum salesman in. Don't even, like, entertain the idea of letting him in, okay? But if you have let him in, certainly don't let him take off the shoes and sit on your couch. Don't offer him a drink of water. Don't even entertain the idea to be hospitable to him. Go like this, shoo, shoo, we don't need any more vacuums in our house. We have two of them, one for the upstairs, one for the downstairs. Go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. Uh, again, nothing against vacuum salesmen, okay? Theologically, what Paul is saying when he says it is excluded is that you might be tempted to entertain the thought after just hearing that God justified you by grace and declaring you not guilty you might be tempted to think like, he justified me, and I'm not all that bad, and that's why I was justified. Like, thinking like this, he justified me because I'm not as bad as that other guy. You should see what that other guy did. Like, he, like, he committed such heinous crimes and the ones that I did aren't comparable to him. Like, we were both in the slave market, 
but you should have seen the bigger shackles on him. Like, he needed some big ones, and I just, like, needed ones that were kind of, like, there, and they covered my wrist just a little bit. Like, I didn't need all that much blood to cover or atone for my sins. I just needed a little dove. He needed a whole cow on the mercy seat of Jesus. The whole, like, dump it out and... That's what he needed, but like, I just needed it a little bit. And that's a reason to boast. Like, that's how the mind works. It plays these games. It compares. It, 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 it is a jealous spirit that is at work within us. And it's really scary. Because we love to compare, and we love to look left, and we love to look right, And we love to set our own rules or standards of how salvation works. But God says that they're His standards, and His standards are perfection, and that no one meets them. Man also tends to boast by thinking that if we are justified by faith alone, Faith must be my gift to God. So what is it? What is faith? Is faith my gift to God or is faith God's gift to man? Okay? That's the question. And if it were my gift to God, faith would be a work. And therefore, it would nullify this whole conversation. If faith were your gift to God, you would have reason to boast. You could say at the end of the day, I figured it out. I came to faith. And friends, uh, this is not how salvation works. This is not how conversion works. And so we're going to go real deep for a second, and I want you to hang there with me, okay? I want you to hang in there. This is, this is the conversation, what is historically known as the Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for order of salvation. And it's really important, okay? It might just sound like theological or maybe 10,000 feet in the clouds, um, but hang with me for a second. We're going to go deeper into this order because Paul does in chapter 8, um, but right now we're going to hone in on conversion. Here's the order of salvation. Here's how it works. First, number one, God regenerates you. So Jeremiah says that God comes and He takes out your heart of stone and He replaces it and He gives you a heart of flesh. So the logic would be that no heart of stone can respond to God. It's rock hard. It's cold. So number one, God regenerates you. And then God grants you or gives you faith and repentance. This is why we can say faith is a gift from God. Not our gift or not our work, but it's His gift to us. And when He gives us faith, then we can respond in faith. Number three, We can respond in faith and repentance to Him. 
So we turn from our sin and we look to God. One act that is not in cooperation with God, like 50-50 salvation. This is God's saving work. This is why the reformers, and we can continue to say that salvation springs from Christ alone. We can say things like faith and repentance are the fruit of the Spirit's regenerating work in the soul. Okay? So just if you want it real clear and concise, the biblical order is that regeneration precedes faith. This ensures us that salvation is holy of God and it's by grace alone, not in cooperation with God. And lastly, number four, when He grants you faith, then you have faith. You possess it. And therefore, God looks upon you and justifies you. And He says, not guilty. We did it, guys. We entered into the conversation of ordo salutis. How'd you do? I think you did pretty well. Well done. You're, you're with me, okay? Um, let's, let's run immediately to application, okay? What, is this, what does this do for you this morning, okay? Um, number one. This is the first application of this morning. The humble believer. This produces humility in the believer. It causes the Christian to be humble, Okay? If the Christian understands the depth of the love of God to save a sinner like this, there is no room for boasting. Catch this, though. There is no room for boasting in himself. But watch this. The believer actually does boast. One of our favorite verses as a family it was my father-in-law's favorite verses, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. And let not the strong man boast of his... And let not the wealthy man boast of his wealth or riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands me and knows me. So friends, this doctrine produces a humble Christian, but the humble Christian boasts in Jesus. Humility speaks of Christ all the time. Humility is very evangelistic. It gives thanks to God. It praises Him. It asks others good, deep, spiritual questions. This is humility in action. Number two, here's the second question that the text asks. Okay, second one, do works get you justified? This is verse 27 and 28. And the answer is no, no. Okay, here we go. Uh, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right, so Paul is a great example of a teacher here, okay? 
He told us last week in the courtroom that we, that, that we are justified by grace and that God does the justifying work. Remember that? This is verse uh, 24, that we are justified by His grace as a gift. Okay? And so you'd go, okay, Paul, like there's no need to return to it, right? Like we got it. And Paul's like, no, 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 I need to make sure that you got it. And so he is like the consummate teacher. And so he teaches antithetically here. Do you know what I mean by that? Meaning, he teaches by way of opposites or negatives so that you understand. For instance, parents know this. Kids, your mom and dad might go, hey, sweetheart, this is the color blue. And this is the color blue. And this is the color blue. And you would go as a kid, great, great, I get it, I get it. But you don't fully get it. And you don't fully understand the color blue until you go, and this pumpkin here is not blue. It's orange. And you go, oh. And so in your new mind, and you're like, you're, as you're processing information, you go, oh, so not all colors are blue. Some colors are different than blue. That's right. This is orange. And this is green. And what color is this stage? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I don't like it. I don't like it. Right? And so that kind of teaching, friends, that kind of teaching is not mean. It's not mean. It's actually really helpful. Okay? And so since Paul does it here, he brings up questions and he says, no, it's not this. It's this. We've got to do it too as a church. So we've got to say, what is justification? We've got to speak about it positively, and then we've got to say, and it's not this. So we're going to practice that. Uh, This is one of my roles as an elder, uh, to affirm good doctrine and to refute the bad. Not everyone likes to refute what is false, And that's why the job of a a teacher, preacher, elder is a noble one. Okay? Um, So, the issue of justification by faith alone, this has been the dividing line between Christianity and the Roman Catholic faith. This is the heart of the church. And it's a really big deal. And most evangelical Protestants um, don't exactly know, or they've never been taught why or what they protest, right? You just think maybe like, oh, I'm not Catholic because um, uh, I, don't, I don't like all the standing and sitting. Or um, they take communion differently. Or uh, the style of worship. Or I'm not quite sure what to think about the Pope. And so I'm just... That's why I'm not Catholic or something. But it's the issue of justification that draws the line very clearly. The English word for justification is the Latin word justificare. And so Rome and the Latin fathers, when they were reading the Bible in Latin, um, and if you're looking for like terms out there, they were reading the Latin Vulgate. Okay, that's the Bible translated into Latin, um, they would naturally read the word justificare, justification. And in Latin, it means to make righteous. And so the question is, 
how is an unrighteous sinner able to be made righteous? And the answer from that definition would be that, and, and this is the development of the doctrine of Roman Catholic like faith, is that you must live a sanctimonious life so that you exhibit righteousness that it is, so that you are acceptable to God. Did you catch that? You must live sanctimonious so that you can exhibit a righteous life so that God would accept you. And they do this by grace, but it's always an issue of definitions of terms, right? And so when they say grace, they mean grace says. And, and so there are seven graces or, um, or um, sacraments that define the Catholic faith. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders. Those are the graces that qualify them for justification. And it's not only once, but it's a reoccurring event throughout their life. A re-justification. Historically, that didn't sit right with a lot of people, and Martin Luther, namely, studied this doctrine and then went back to the original Greek, which is what the Bible, the New Testament was written in, and looked at that word and said, it doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to declare, to be declared righteous. Passive. You can't declare yourself to be righteous. This de declaration has to happen from someone outside of you. Okay? So justification, dash, to be declared righteous. There's one word in there that is a game changer. Make or declare. One is done by performing acts to acquire righteousness, and one is done for you or upon you, or one is done by God. Do you hear me? Application. So what do you say? This, you know, is, is, this, is this Newman just to like win an argument against my Catholic friends or neighbors or whatever? No. Here's what it does to the believer. It gives the believer hope. So application number two is the hope-filled believer. Hope is not, oh, I really hope I make it to heaven. That's not hope. Hope is believing that you have been justified and that you are confident that God will deliver what He has promised. So if you have believed, Christian, brothers and sisters, friends, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, that is, if you've repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Him, your place in heaven is secure. The doctrine is called the security of the believer. And to have security in the lens or in the mind of the Catholic faith is the height of arrogancy. And you can see why. To say, well, I've got this in the bag. 
I am a believer 100%. I'm going to heaven. I know I'm a Christian. They would say, you're arrogant. No one should say that because justification happens every day by earning it. And you can't arrive at that position. But to the believer who is declared righteous, you have all the assurance in the world. So friends, believers, take hope in what is to come. Live a life of confident, hope-filled prayers unto the Lord. And from your state or condition of being declared righteous by God, walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Jesus. Are you with me? Hey, I'm available to you. I am not just a public speaker. I'm a pastor. If you have questions, ask me. Got it? I want conversations to happen as a result of that. You got it? All right. Here's number three. Question number three. Are there two ways to have faith and be justified? Are there two ways? Obviously, the answer is no. Let's read verse 29 and dive into it. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Okay, so here is another important question that Paul is asking. Okay, And Paul really is going to dive deeper into it in chapter 4 into this discussion. And, uh, and we'll start that next week. But here is basically what they're asking. And I'm just trying to make this conver- as conversational as possible. Okay, so Hey Paul, hold on! God told us to get circumcised as a sign of faith. And so we're understanding you now that the Gentiles do not need to get circumcised in order to have faith. But to be a Jew is to be circumcised. Like that is us. That's like our culture, our traditions. That's our very identity. This is like to be distinctly Jewish. And so it would seem, Paul, that you're, you're saying that there's two ways to have faith. Circumcision plus faith, that would be Jewish, and faith, which would be everyone else. Right, Paul? And Paul's like so pastoral with him. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's always been by faith alone, friends, Jews, Gentiles. God's plan has always been by faith alone. It's by grace alone, not plus anything. And so he answers the question rooted in the character of God. He says, hey, God's consistent. God is not divided. Since He is one, then... Let's just read it together. Let your eyes go there. Just the very last part of verse 29. Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, you see that there, who will justify the circumcised by faith. Circumcised by faith. All right, look at verse 30 with me a little bit closer. You might be wondering, okay, why is he saying circumcised by faith and uncircumcised through faith? Is there some sort of cool or mystical uh, thing going on with the language? Do I need to know Greek in order to like understand this 
And it's like, no, you're fine. You're fine. This is where like owning a good commentary would help. So like, uh, ladies, Christmas is coming up. So go ahead and buy your husbands like a good commentary and put it in their stocking. You just need a big stocking, okay? But like slip it on in there. Or like even other translations, okay? You can get some good translations and check it if you don't know it. So here's another good translation of this verse. It's from the NIV. All right, here we go. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Isn't that great? Hey, all Paul's saying here is, hey, there's just one faith. It's the same thing. Like God didn't invent something cool or new. Jews, Gentiles, same God, same faith. There's one God, and he's consistent. There's one faith, and that faith is is consistent. And it doesn't change depending on your ethnicity or cultural background or traditions or skin color or height or weight. Summary, there's one God and one faith and the people of God to come to God through this faith become one people. The church. Got it? Application number three is the third application from this third question. This should give you a heart for others. This is outside the church and in the church. Okay? Outside the church, it should be like no matter what color, personality, size, socioeconomic status, whatever, you, because you have Christ, should desire them to come to faith. You should show no partiality or preference. And within the body, this should give you a heart for others, no matter the color or personality or size or socioeconomic status, because they have the same faith. That's why it's cool when, when non-believers are looking in and they're seeing a 25 or a 35-year-old something hanging out with a 55 or a 65-year-old something who have nothing in common except The one faith. And then your neighbors go, why are you hanging out? Or is that your mom and dad? No, 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 no. No, They're of the same faith. We love them. We love them. Well, they don't even like football. They don't even like this, 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 this. I know. I know. We're so different. Except we have the same faith. That should drive you. So even in our community groups, like, let's, let's spread the love. Let's not have like all same ages. Let's be like multi-ethnic, multi-color, multi-age. like age. It should be different. Go where people are naturally different so that supernaturally God would do a work in your life. It should give you a heart for others. Last question. Does faith work? Here we go. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So if I'm justified by God through faith alone, and if faith is a gift from God, do I have to do anything? (laughs) It's a good question, isn't it? It's a really good question. And they asked it. Like, this is an FAQ. 
So let's talk a lot about it. Again, this is not just like a one and done sermon. Let's start the conversation and learn and discuss and grow and go deep together with this, okay? Is there any part in my salvation? And this is not asked with a heart of wanting to be prideful. We already dealt with that in the first question. There's no room for boasting. I think what they're asking is, does all this theology lead to apathy? What do you think? Does this law of faith care for what God has said and done in the Old Testament? Or does faith work? The faith that God gives, does it produce fruit? Is it worth it? Is, does it do stuff? And Paul says, absolutely. Absolutely. When a person is saved, they are given Christ. And He promises to work in our lives. And through Him, we fulfill the law. All right, my favorite verse, Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you, we could say that's salvation or justification, will carry it on to completion. Do you hear that promise? That's sanctification. He'll keep on working on you. That's through the character of God, not you. The historic camp word or the historic term that you need to know and be equipped with is that is the perseverance of God in the life of a believer. That's what he does. He began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is, until he comes back or until you physically die. And he's going to keep working in your life. Isn't that a great comfort? Application. Application. So we would say this produces the happy believer. Okay? This is a deep happiness. Like the believer who has Christ, who has been given faith. That faith is a gift that keeps on giving. That would be kind of a cute way to say it, okay? So friends, uh, here's another angle of it. You're free from your past sins. You no longer have to... You might be thinking, well, God saved me. I'm forgiven. Um, but like, I still have to pay for the sins of my past. I still have to dwell on them. Or at least I do anyways. I still feel guilty. It plagues me. I hate them. I still carry them. You don't have to do that. Because of the manner in which God treats you. He's giving you faith now. And by the strength of His power in you, He wants you to live by faith. He wants you to keep trusting that He has forgiven you sins of the past, now, and the sins that you will do. That's what He does. That's how we live by faith. And this produces not a guilt-driven Christian, not a sad Christian, an Eeyore Christian. This produces happiness because you're free. If you have that freedom, then you're free to walk 
in a manner worthy of your calling. You're free to obey. You're free, friends. Like last week, we're going to give you a little time to just dwell on what you just heard. This is called receiving God's word. The Bereans did it. They received God's word to see if it was so. And so we're going to ask two questions. The questions are this. Lord, what did you want me to hear today? And then how do you want me to respond? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. This is not some sort of cool way to end a service or to tie a bow around uh, the, the Christian service church. This is giving a chance for God's people to respond to God's word. We want to be quiet before him and go, everything that I read in the scriptures, Lord, why did you want me here today? What do you want to produce in my life? In musical terms, you're saying, I'm out of tune. Tune my heart to sing thy grace this week. So let's sit in that. We'll sing a little and then I'll come up to dismiss us and 